We believe in our flags and we believe in symbolic actions, but we think they're only symbolic. And that's not the case with the sacraments. These are symbols, yeah, but they're symbols that contain the very power and life of God. And we need that power and life and it changes us in physical and tangible ways. And I think all that's been lost by our culture in its um, pursuit of a kind of scientific knowledge as a God itself. Why is it that the Eucharist is the center of our Catholic faith? And how is this mystery made manifest in the world? How do we regain the sacramental imagination of times past to lead us courageously into the future? In this episode, Chairman of the USCCB Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis and Head of the National Eucharistic Revival, Bishop Andrew Cousins, invites us to witness to the real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. My sufferings, my struggles that I go through, my frustrations, my weaknesses, all that has the power to be transformed into redemptive action. It can all be part of Christ's redeeming. My own sufferings, because Christ lives in me, can be Christ's sufferings. As members of the body of Christ, we can join in his redemptive action and become witnesses to the Eucharist as the source and summit of all things. This is Living the Call. Bishop Andrew Cousins, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a delight to be here, Deacon Charlie. Grateful to be with you. Well, it's a privilege to have you, especially at this, you know, what I would think is actually a very opportune moment uh, in our country to have the discussion that hopefully we're going we're gonna to be talking about. You and I had um, a kind of a preliminary conversation before we actually set the date for this recording. And, you know, for those who don't know you, you're the Bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, which I understand is the northernmost diocese in the contiguous U.S. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. We have that little part of the United States that sticks up at Lake of the Woods. That's in Crookston Diocese. Nice. Uh, and you've been there, you know, relative, your relatively recent addition to that diocese. You came from uh, St. Paul, uh, from Minnesota's uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, area prior to that. And in addition to, obviously, the diocese that you, that you lead and shepherd, Bishop, you are the chairman of the USCCB's Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. And if you didn't have enough to do, you're also uh, leading the three-year Eucharistic revival that begins in just a matter of weeks. That's correct. June 19th is our big kickoff. We've been preparing for this for about 18 months, so we're very excited for the kickoff. Now, excellent. Um, and at the risk of maybe being a bit too remedial, but just something you should know, Excellency, about this show is we actually have listeners from all across the kind of spiritual spectrum, as well as a, you know, the journey of the Catholic faith. So we have people who listen to the show that, of course, are very devout, are very Catholic, but we have a lot of people who are, who are not, or who are maybe on a journey or on a way. When somebody hears Eucharistic revival, they might not even have a frame to understand what that means. If you were talking to somebody who maybe didn't share our faith, how would you, how would you explain what leading this Eucharistic revival means? Yeah, so um, the Eucharistic revival is um, an inspiration that we hope will affect the whole church and really call the church uh, in this time back to the heart of who she is. Um, for us as Catholics, the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our life. It's In that sense, it's the place from where our life comes and the place to where our life leads. And in that sense, sort of encompasses the whole life of the church. And we think of it in many ways as the greatest gift that Jesus gave to his church. 
And so we think this is an opportune time for a lot of reasons to hold up that gift. And so the bishops have joined together to have this Eucharistic revival in order to hold up the gift of the Eucharist and to invite the church both to reverence that gift and to share it. Mm. And and you talk about, you said opportune, so it begs the question, well, why is it opportune? Why now? Yeah, I think there's probably three good reasons for why now. You know, um, a lot of people do know that the kind of original impetus came from uh, a study, the Pew Research Forum did a study in uh, 2019, and that study seemed to show that about 70% of Catholics don't profess a Catholic faith in the Eucharist. That is, they didn't understand or accept the church's teaching around the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, which is something very important to us from apostolic times. And so uh, that caught the bishop's attention, you know, and I, at least for me, it didn't surprise me because I'd been familiar with a lot of the struggles that the church is having, especially around disaffiliation and the many people sort of checking out from the church for various reasons. So the fact that 70% of those who call themselves Catholic didn't profess a Catholic faith in the Eucharist didn't necessarily surprise me, even though it's a of huge concern, right? And uh, But the bishops really uh, were motivated by that to begin to think about what we might do. And um, we actually started meeting about this in January and February of 2020. Um, if you can imagine that there was life before COVID, this happened before COVID. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and we were already planning a Eucharistic revival. Um, Bishop Barron at that time was leading the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. I was the chair-elect. And we were planning this revival, and we were going to roll it out to the bishops in June of 2020. But then COVID hit in the middle of March, and everything shut down. And we went. We began this crisis that has gripped our country now for the better part of two years. And so um, we didn't get to roll it out then. We got to explain it to the bishops in November of 2020. And then uh, we began with the support of all the bishops to really plan it and continue to seek their approval step by step. So I think the first reason is just that, you know, we saw a crisis in belief and we wanted to address that crisis in belief. I think um, there are really two other reasons I think it's important. The second one is that uh, right now there's a kind of crisis across all of our culture and um, it's a difficult time to be a Christian in certain ways in our country. And as Catholics, in order to be strengthened in this time, it's really important to focus on what's at the heart, what's at the center. I was reading recently um, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical on the Eucharist. So he lives right at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, and he's a saint in our tradition, Saint Leo XIII. And he um, he really uh, had a whole set of crises that he was dealing with. And he said, in the midst of all these crises, the thing I want to do most is focus on the Eucharist. And he said, people mm. might wonder, like, shouldn't we focus on something more practical? How do we defeat modernist heresies and these sort of things? He said, nope, we need to go yeah. to the Eucharist because it's the heart and center. And if we get that right, everything else is going to flow from that. And so, you know, I think that this, you know, th- that he was right and focusing on the Eucharist in the midst when everything else is in crisis can strengthen us and really give us the heart and center. Well, this may be a bit of a silly analogy, but makes the same point. I remember hearing one time or reading at some point uh, in the the fashion industry, which, as you can imagine or have seen, even if you're not uh, intimate with the fashion industry, it tends to get 
you know, pretty elaborate. You have these fashion shows and somebody's wearing a birdcage and somebody's walking down uh, the runway and it's the most sort of extravagant outfits. And, and somehow things get so overwrought that you lose all sense of what the thing is you're supposed to be even observing. And at one point, I forget who it was that said this, but, um, you know, when, when that sort of sense gets lost, the image that they gave was just remember somebody like James Dean, right, in the fashion sense, you know, very simple dress and could kind of get grounded back in what the idea of fashion was. Now, again, it's sort of an out there comparison, but I think it makes a similar point that there's so many different, you know, ways that we can look at the way that our faith, uh, we're interacting with the faith in the world and all of these different issues with the the sort of overlap between the popular culture and the faith. There's a lot of battlefronts that you could potentially look at and go, we've got to be here, we've got to be here, we've got to be here. But the idea of the Eucharist is really to returning to what you rightly said, that source and summit of the faith, the sort of the, the ground and foundation from which everything flows and to which everything returns. And if we get that part sort of squared away, you'd kind of, you know, you could reasonably posit that other things can kind of take care of themselves. Yeah, to put it in kind of maybe modern terms, this is our identity. This is who we are. And we come to discover who we are at the Eucharist. Um, we're the ones for whom Christ gave up his life and continues to give his life. And it's his life that we receive in the Eucharist. And so when we know who we are and when we're strengthened in who we are, then we're prepared to stand against the other great struggles. And then the answers will come to those struggles mm. if we focus on who we are. Now, I remember that Pew study, Excellency, and when that came out, to your point, I think that did make a lot of shockwaves, and people looked at it, and I think there was a number of camps, people who couldn't believe it, people who maybe like you were, uh, you know, a little bit less shocked by it, et cetera, but it, it ran the gamut. You describe that 70% as people who either don't know or fundamentally reject the teaching of the, of the Church on the Eucharist. It, it, and you may not know this, and I don't expect you to, but mm -hmm. what's your sense of that break, that percentage between those who don't know and those who reject? Are we growing in either of those? Has there been more growth in the kind of folks who may know, but they just don't believe it? Or is it more growth in the people who are just, they're just not aware that the Eucharist is the real presence of Jesus and that's what the Church teaches? How would you p place it for today, for this time and space? Yeah, um, you know, we've done a little bit of our own study on this too since then, and, and we're actually, Kara is, is kind of reproducing an even deeper study that should be out in a, in a, in a number of weeks. But um, even Pew, though, did break it down a little bit. So they said that basically 20% um, of people said they understood the church's teaching on transubstantiation, but they didn't accept it. You know, so it was 30% who mm. understood it and accepted it, 20% who understood it but didn't accept it, and then the rest didn't understand it or didn't accept it. Um, so uh, the uh, and is that growing? I think it is growing, um, and I think it's growing for a lot of reasons. Um, a lot of them have to do with, um, I think, a whole sense of the loss of a sacramental worldview. <laughs> and this used to be like the way everybody viewed the world, you know. Um, you think of, you know, my grandfather who was a farmer, you know, and uh, he had a sense that in his real ways, his life depended on God and um, mm. his life depended on God for, for rain and for sun and for all those things. And that when he saw the sun come up in the morning, there was a sense that God's behind this, you know, 
and not in a simplistic way. Obviously, he knew about gravity and the way that plants you know, planets flow around the world and all that stuff. And but a real sense that you know, as the scriptures say, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and that human life and the experiences of human life point to deeper, more important, invisible realities. That the body reveals the soul, and that the soul is actually a more important invisible reality that that um, can be known. And in fact, is you know helps us um, helps us identify ourselves, but um, but is a real principle that's that's in, mm. immortal and immaterial, you know. But this kind of modern scientific way of viewing the world has uh, separated reality from God, and so God becomes then kind of purely spiritual outside of reality, and that's that is against the incarnation. Right, Jesus. Mm. Jesus is the God who takes on human flesh, and it's certainly against the sacraments, um, which are continuations of the incarnation. Um, you know, Saint Leo the Great from the fourth century, he said, "You know, what Christ did in earth has passed over into his sacraments." Mm. Saint Thomas Aquinas, when he says, he says, "It's a mercy of God that he comes to us in physical, tangible ways because he knows we're material beings." But God himself comes to us in these ways, and the sacraments actually affect what they sim- signify. So people still understand the power of a symbol, right? You know, we believe in our flags and we believe in symbolic actions, but we think they're only symbolic. Mm. And that's not the case with the sacraments. These are symbols, yeah, but they're symbols that contain the very power and life of God. That's and right. we need that power and life, and it changes us in physical and tangible ways. And I think all that's been lost by our culture in its um, pursuit of a kind of scientific knowledge as a God itself. Yeah, when, when you and I first talked about this, I remember jotting this down. You called it the, the Catholic sacramental imagination having been lost or impacted. And I think that that's a big part of what you're describing. Do you think, though, when you think back about you know your grandfather and, this, and, and what you just shared, this sort of sense that he was part of something dependent on God, but part of a broader tapestry of things working together. That to me says uh, an element of interdependence, right? Of mm-hmm. us being a player in this salvific plan in, in mm-hmm. a variety of different ways and, 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 and you know, and, and forms. Do you think that in our country in particular, because of the maybe, you know, American ideals that are much more focused on independence, rather than interdependence, does that play a role at all in this loss of sacramental imagination? Absolutely. Um, And it goes back to uh, St. Paul himself, who said, you know, that when we eat his body and drink his blood, we become part of the body of Christ, right? So St. Paul says, you know, um, by eating his body, we become part of his body. And St. Paul had that very real sense that... um, I'm a member of the body of Christ, you know, and this is so clear in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the different parts of the body. Mm-hmm. For St. Paul, though, that's a Eucharistic image, just as it was for St. John when he said the vine and the branches. Like, how is it that the branches are connected to the vine? It's the Eucharist, right? Uh, St. John, when he says, you know, uh, remain in me, and he speaks about how the branch is called to remain in the vine. It's the same word St. John uses, says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot remain in me. But the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. And so there is this real sense of we become part of the church, and it's actually together through the body of Christ, which is 
made real in the Eucharist, that we together go to heaven. We're together saved. We're not saved as individuals, but in our modern kind of individualistic society, um, that that gets really lost. Now, of course, it requires the individual assent of my will, right? <laughs> but I surrender myself to become part of this body. And it's by being part of the body of Christ that I'm saved and, and that Christ saves my body. I think all the sacramental actions are, are, you know, are, well, they're beautiful in a lot of different ways, but um, specifically because of this action of, you know, matter and the spirit, right? We have a, and I think maybe it's even more pronounced nowadays, there's this, this sense, which you've already kind of talked about, this sort of, this sense, the sense of maybe over-spiritualizing and then simultaneously having this sort of scientism you know, bent to us, right? Where we don't believe things, and I'm speaking popular in popular terms, mm-hmm. but we don't. We tend not to believe things unless they can be ratified by a series of scientific experiments. And yet, at the same time, there's all these movements of what I would maybe put in an overly spiritualized category, right? Things of you know uh, having good thoughts and you know all kinds of. Uh, you know, mantras and things that are maybe more Eastern that find their way into very easily into popular culture. And so you have this weird dynamic where we've got this sort of scientism thing that's flourishing. And then at the same time, this may be over-spiritualizing. But to me, the whole sacramental um, theology and the, and the way the sacraments work are really an integration of both the material and the spiritual in in one way, because we are ourselves, you know, that creation. We are we are matter and we are spirit, and you know, God could have done this anyway. He could have just, you know, he could have mm-hmm. made us anyway, and but he chose to make us this particular way, and then consequently make us as a family, as a community, as a as a church. And so it, it's interesting to me to see those poles kind of taking flight, um, but kind of hopping right over, I think, that beautiful sacramental vision that seeks to really, you know, incre- you know, integrate these signs and symbols with the very things they actually bring about, right, all, all together in, in, in one place. And I think that's like a great, you know, it's a shame that people, generally speaking, don't, don't see or capture that. Absolutely. And um, it brings home the whole kind of reality of what holiness is, because holiness, of course, it doesn't happen simply by having the right set of mind, although obviously, you know, spending time alone in prayer with the Lord is essential to holiness. It happens in the everyday life where I live with my body, <laughs> and I have to live as an integrated person in order to become holy. And so it's it's about, you know, all the ordinary decisions that I make in a given day. And uh, the purpose of the sacraments is to help um, one, put those before me so that so that I'm continually called to holiness, um, but also to give me grace through them so that I can live in holiness. And I think this does connect actually to one of the things that I've thought a lot about in terms of the, the Eucharist, which is, um, you mentioned, you know, our our cooperation with grace. And it's one of the things that the Eucharist is meant to teach us is that... Mm. We're actually part of redemption. My, my cooperation with Christ is part of redeeming the world because I'm I'm His yeah. body in the world right now. Yeah. And so, um, so Saint Paul has that phrase, which is so mystifying to people. But you know, I make up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of His body, the Church. 
And that's right. What could be lacking? Very, what could be lacking? Yeah, it's a very <laughs> Eucharistic image because uh, all that's lacking is that the whole body of Christ isn't partaking in the redemption, right? And that's right. Basically, my daily life um, and my sufferings, my struggles that I go through, my frustrations, my weaknesses, all that has the power to be transformed into redemptive action. Mm. It can all be part of Christ's redeeming. My own sufferings, because Christ lives in me, can be my can be Christ's sufferings. And this is the whole teaching that we have in the faith about you know offer it up. <laughs> what do we, and you know my mom used to say it to me when I was little and I hated it because there was no answer. You know, like well, I don't want to offer yeah. it up. <laughs> but but what's she saying? She's saying take this suffering which you have in your life right now and in your imagination connect it to someone who's suffering more than you. Mm. Connect it to someone who needs to come to know Christ. Connect it to someone who is in danger of death or someone who's living in a war-torn Ukraine. Connect it to someone who needs it more than you. And your suffering can help them. Now, that would be nonsense, except for the fact that I'm part of the body of Christ. Mm. And that when I bring that suffering to Mass and I place it on the altar at the offertory, it actually becomes part of Christ's sacrifice. And it's not just my forgoing a particular thing. It's actually part of Christ's own self-gift to the Father for the redemption of the world today. Mm. Amen. That's this, yeah. by the way, was this by the way is what Mary's doing at the foot of the cross, right? What's our lady doing at the foot of the cross? She's uniting her suffering to his, his offering, his perfect offering. And offering her own suffering of her son dying mm. for the salvation of the world, along with him, right? And it's it's what we mean when we say co-redemptrix. We don't mean co We don't mean equal. <laughs> there's one redeemer because there's only one God man. But all of us are called to cooperate in redemption by our learning to make our lives a gift. And this is one of the things the Eucharist wants to teach us. And that's such a beautiful way to bring up, you know, this concept of, you know, our, our own individual plans in, in that redemption story. Because I also think that, depending on who you are, you may find it hard to believe that you are indispensable to the salvific plan in one way or another. You know, I, I was speaking to, um, to somebody just last week uh, who had heard me at one point in one of my talks, you know, talk about the fact that I went through a period of time in my corporate career of really, really bad depression, anxiety, and insomnia. And this is something that, and it was this arduous multi-month period of time. And it was really, really brutal. It was like, kind of like whatever my version of the dark night of the soul was, I think it was that. Um, but, I, you know, he, he was commenting on that and mentioned to me that he was going through something similar and then asked me like, well, what did you do, you know, to get past that moment? What did you do? And, and, and honestly, it's one of those questions where, you know, I, I, I try to think about it as like, well, is there a system, a series of steps that I did? But it really wasn't that. And I told him, I said, I, I think I did two things now looking at it in the rearview mirror. One of them was surrender, um, because a lot of my pain and anxiety and insomnia was really the result of, you know, me in a way making a God out of myself. That was part mm -hmm. of my particular challenge and trying to, uh, you know, be the center of the universe, really, and all the problems or good things were of my doing, right? So that was one. And the second one, I think, to your excellent point, is that, you know, I really ratcheted up my um, helping of other people 
And, mm-hmm. and I did this not strategically. I did it sort of incidentally. It just happened to be a part of the season of my life. But in doing that, in, in joining, in, in really trying to be compassionate, joining to, into the sufferings of other people, I recognized that there was a practical aspect, which was, well, I was thinking a lot less about myself at that moment because your mind's busy with something else. But then there was this kind of supernatural component well, where, yes, I think I could help people get better, but at the same time, I was making myself better. And it mm-hmm. was this great, you know, again, in the rearview mirror, you look at just the, the genius of God that he gives us these roles to play and, and, and allows us these opportunities to unite our sufferings to the cross for the salvation of the world, et cetera. But it's also a way to draw us, you know, us closer, other people closer. And it's all kind of interwoven together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I often think of that line from, um, I think it's in St. Peter, where he says, bear your share of the hardship for the sake of the gospel. And I love the mm. idea that there is my share, you know, and or the poem by Cardinal Newman, where he says, um, you know, uh, I, I am a link in a chain, uh, a bond of connection among persons. And I have some mission that I've been given to do in this life, and I may never know it until the end, right? Um, but I'll, I'll know it in the next life. And uh, so this sense that um, in the great web of God's plan, there is some particular uh, cross that I'm, that I'm invited to carry for and with Christ. But you're exactly right. The more I can kind of turn away from myself, suffering always wants to turn me into myself. And uh, the more I can turn that towards God and towards others, the more I'm going to come to um, freedom and mm. salvation. And to me, I do think this is one of the um, purposes of Mass. Is uh, And I think if you think the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is misunderstood— Try talking about the sacrifice of the Mass, right? Mm. I think an even lesser degree of Catholics actually understand what this means. But the point is, this is my body given up for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Those words only make sense in light of the cross. They make present the cross. That's what we believe. They, They are the cross given for us. And I'm meant to experience that. This is Christ given for me. And then to get courage and strength to go on and be able to give myself, you know, even in the dark times, which all of us Mm. go through those dark times, just like you're talking about. Well, let's talk a little bit about that cross, because, you know, even somebody who's not equipped in a kind of Catholic understanding would realize, you know, Chief Bishop, 70% of your adherents kind of don't either get or buy this major tenet of what makes them who they are or supposed to make them who they are. So you've got a lot of opposition. Um, again, some of that opposition just may be simple ignorance, um, and we mean that the word ignorance in the most generous way. And other opposition could be this very deep desire of not wanting to, uh, you know, to basically abide by that particular teaching. So there, there are going to be and have been throughout history lots of crosses, you know, for people to bear. Um, in carrying forward this this notion, and and that's what fundamentally you are leading in a way for the for the USCCB is this you know kind of uphill revival. Now we know everything is all things are possible with God, but nevertheless, you know there's going to be and have been tremendous difficulties around that. And you know it's not often you know Excellency that 
the Eucharist breaks into the popular culture and in the common culture, but it has. We're in a moment right now, just last week, you know, with, you know, what what uh, went down in the Archdiocese of San Francisco with Archbishop Cordelioni, uh, you know, taking a pastoral action uh, to deny communion from a particular a member of, of Congress, that now this is broken out. It's in, you know, I'm, I'm seeing headlines mm-hmm. in secular media and whatever, and that's not every day that you're talking mm-hmm. about you know, the Eucharist in the sense of, of, of kind of popular culture. How do you, I, I guess, what's your thinking about those areas of opposition, obstacles, et cetera, the things that we need to contend with, that you need to contend with, that all of us need to kind of bear in mind as we advance this, this revival and this notion in our own particular place? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is to remember that the Eucharist has been a source of division since the beginning. So go back to John chapter 6, and you find the Lord speaking most clearly about the gift of the Eucharist when he says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in in me, in you. And uh, that was a source of scandal, understandably, for Jews who the drinking of blood was completely forbidden according to Jewish law. So when Jesus says this, he means business, and uh, and people leave when Jesus says this, and he, he doesn't beg them to come back. He, he basically says, you know, um, he turns to his closest disciples and says, will you also leave? And they say, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And I always love that answer because it, they don't say, well, no, we understand. It's okay. We got it. No, they just say, well, we, right. we're as confused as everybody else, but we know you. And um, I think, you know, that's really kind of the key which is, again, it's calling people back to our identity, which is who we are within and through Jesus. And I haven't seen in my short time as a bishop, I've been a bishop for eight years, anything that has captured the attention of the bishops quite so profoundly as this Eucharistic revival. And um, in, in a positive way, obviously, we all dealt with the sexual abuse crisis. We've all dealt with many things, but in a, in a sense of like hope, and a sense of the Holy Spirit's in something. And so I do believe the Holy Spirit's in this Eucharistic revival, and that's why so many bishops have come behind it, and a lot of people have said, this is the right time, you know. Um, And I think the way forward is going to be a testimony, (laughs) testimony, witness, you know. This is the way the gospel always spreads, one person sharing their personal faith with another person. And... um, I was even so struck by it last week when I was praying with uh, the book of Revelations, and it said that talking about the devil being cast out of heaven, he was cast out by the blood of the Lamb and That's the word right. of their testimony. That's right. And I thought the That's accuser exactly is it. cast out. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think we want to empower people who do believe in the Eucharist to witness to that. And we want to invite people to come to understand, but more importantly, to experience that Jesus is present in the Eucharist and that this gift has the power to transform their lives. Hmm. And we're going to testify to that. And we're going to invite the church to testify to that. And we're going to testify it in the streets with our Eucharistic processions in a couple of weeks across the country. And we'll testify it with a National Eucharistic Congress in 2024, where uh, we hope tens of thousands of people will come together to witness to their belief in the Eucharist. And Jesus says, you know, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And that's really what our goal is. We hope to, conv- you know, to actually uh, strengthen and convert some of those who are who are connected to the church. That's really our early goal, but who don't understand the teaching or, or don't believe it. Um, some of those people who 
go to mass even, maybe even regularly, but don't fully understand it. But then we hope by strengthening ourselves, we'll be able to witness to the world in a broader, in a broader way. With the idea that the Eucharist has been certainly not the source, but the cause of division from the very beginning. You cited John 6, and we see it in the early Church Fathers and a thousand other Mm -hmm. sort of examples. With that in the background, Mm -hmm. what would you say to people, maybe Catholics in this case, who say, you know, Bishop, how do we keep from that division happening in the Church? Even among, you know, various bishops, there are certainly differences of opinion in terms of disciplinary action revolving the Eucharist. So what would you say to somebody who's like, I'm concerned that the division that has always existed caused by the Eucharist is is getting into the church or can get into the church? Mm-hmm. I guess the thing I would say is that the unity that the church has is only unity in Christ. So it's really by our union with Christ and his teaching and his truth that we are able to have true union. And this is actually one of the things we know about the Eucharist, um, just as it, as it was when Christ was walking on the earth. I always point back to that um, story of the woman who touched the hem of Jesus's garment and was healed. And uh, if you remember the story, lots of people were touching Jesus that day. <laughs> he was That's in a right. crowd of people. And she touched him and she was healed. And Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the apostles were like, what do you mean who touched you? Like, all these people are touching you. <laughs> but one person touched him with faith. And because she had faith, she was healed. And that's that's what makes the difference in the Eucharist, right? If I receive mm. him with faith, I know who he is. Then he has the power to transform me. So lots of people can receive the Eucharist, and it can have no effect. It can even have a negative effect, St. Paul says, right? You can eat and drink to your own condemnation if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner. That's St. Paul, not me. I didn't. And, and St. Right. Paul's talking about the Corinthian community who's divided about amongst the rich and the poor, and they're not sharing the resources with the rich and the poor. And he says, because of that, your Eucharist is actually bringing you death. Mm. Um in fact, he says, this is why some of you have died. So, uh, some are sick and others have died, because you're not fully living in communion with the Lord. And so I, I think we always have to come back to that. Our union will be union with the Lord. Now, when it comes to liturgy, there, uh, I think maybe I've always been, certainly in our time, we do live in a time of liturgy wars, right? <laughs> so there's going to be lots of debates about um, what's the most reverent way to do the liturgy? What's what's the true spirit of the liturgy um for myself i really i really love um the book by romano guardini one of pope francis's favorite theologians uh the spirit of the liturgy and uh and then the sequel to it which was written by cardinal ratzinger now pope benedict and where he does i think capture rightly um what it means to worship god and the importance of the liturgy um but uh, we know from the beginning of the church that whether the mass was said in Latin or Greek or um, Russian or English or Spanish, the mass is the mass. And that's really what the Eucharistic revival is about. Um, the one mass, which is the representation of Christ's death on the cross that feeds his people with his body and blood. And, um, so we will try to avoid those different disagreements about what might be best, those are important conversations to have. They're not necessarily part of our Eucharistic revival, which is really about the heart of the teaching. But I do believe 
um, it's a moment of unity for the church United States to come together around this gift. Mm. And it's one of the beautiful things I've seen in the various apostolates and other people we're inviting to participate that everyone loves the Eucharist. And so it's a place where we can be united together. Absolutely. Uh, Excellency, what role do young people have to play in driving a, a deeper understanding of the Eucharist and in this revival? You know, um, I've been privileged to work with young people for most of my life as a priest and a bishop, and uh, I have seen powerfully what happens when a young person encounters Jesus in the Eucharist and how transformative that can be. And uh, so they have an essential role to play in this revival. Um, and when it when they experience that Jesus is real in the Eucharist, it, it does have an impact on them. And many times we know for young people this happens in adoration. I always say it's kind of the first movement of discipleship, right? The first movement of discipleship is there is a God and I'm not it. <laughs> like You are the Lord and you are God and therefore you must be the center of my life. That's the first movement of discipleship that we see the apostles go through in the scriptures, you know. Mm. Um, Lord, leave me. I'm a sinful man. You are the Lord and you are the one who needs to be in charge. And many times people experience that especially young people, for the first time in adoration. When it's explained to them and then the Holy Spirit opens up that door and they're able to encounter Jesus is the Lord. And when they do, that just changes things, you know. Then Mass comes to life. Then the Scriptures come to life. Um, they want to spend time in adoration. And they can become incredibly powerful witnesses to the power of the Eucharist. Um, and so I... I we plan uh, actually to, to find different ways to help them give that testimony during the revival. Mm. When you look at young people in the church today, um, and I, I know you're in the northern part of, of Minnesota, and you might not see this maybe as readily as, as we do here in Los Angeles or in other areas, but when we look at young people, we also have to contend with uh, sort of a demographic reality in the U.S. that most of the young Catholics are people of Hispanic descent. Um, 60 some odd percent, I think is the, is the number and that's steadily growing. And I mm -hmm. wonder as you think about, and in all your work with youth and now in the context of this, this broader work and this revival, if the Latino community specifically, because they're such a huge component of, of youth and in other ways, you know, they're a pretty significant plurality now anyway, of the church, it's about 40% of all Catholics. If, if there's something about that community that can be harnessed or in some way activated, you know, for the benefit of, of, this, uh, of this revival and, and, and really the, maybe the bringing together of the division that exists in this country. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I worked in Latino ministry for many years in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, where around 20% of our Catholics were Latinos. And, um, you know, for years did Spanish mass and confessions and, you know, all kinds of pastoral ministry, both while I was in the seminary and then as an auxiliary bishop in Spanish. And um, I found um, almost uh, what it was hard to describe that uh, the fact that amongst my Latino people, I found a, a greater openness to the supernatural mm -hmm. and to the power of Christ and the desire for the Eucharist, the desire for um, the life of the Holy Spirit, I found it um, 
it was always easier to preach to the Latinos and it's hard to explain why, but, um, I think it was, uh, in my experience that, the um, those who had been part of the U S culture for longer periods of time had become a little bit more cynical or something like that. And I always had to have my defenses up when I was preaching, but, uh, I found this openness of heart amongst the Latino people that was extremely powerful. Mm. And when you find, um, you know, a Latino family, um, and in particular, Latino men who come, fall in love with the Eucharist, they're on fire and they are very oh, hard yeah. to stop, you know, very hard to stop, which is great. That's exactly what we want. And um, so I think they have a real power to um, help show us um, the power of the Eucharist. I also think this is very important too. Um, the Latino culture is one of the great examples of the enculturation of the faith. And we do not have this in our U.S. culture, and, and people who don't know it, don't, they don't understand it. But, I mean, it, it starts with Our Lady of Guadalupe. She is the great example of enculturation. Here is Mary, who comes as an indigenous woman, and who reveals, uh, in the context of everyday life, how it is that, in fact, Jesus wants to come and transform our culture. Um, many people don't even know this. For example, I, I just learned this recently. You know, our, all of our monstrances, which now almost always are a sun shape. This is the, a monstrance, you know, is what we use to expose the Blessed Sacrament. That comes from Guadalupe. Before, mm. before, before Guadalupe, monstrances used to be made like little churches. So it was like a temple and in the center was the Eucharist. But it was this idea that Jesus is the true sun. And the, and the Aztec people, of course, worshiped the sun. And so... The enculturation of the gospel was to put the blessed sacrament in the center with the rays coming out from it and to show, no, this is the true sun God <laughs> right here, right? And uh, so I, the Latino culture has enculturated the faith in such profound ways, so profound that sadly some people are only culturally Catholic, right? That's right. So they, ha they have all these cultures, but they don't, they don't actually know Jesus and they don't know that they're a sinner and they need redemption and all those things. But, um, but it's much more open, I think, to the truth of, of the gospel and the incarnation and the power of the Eucharist. And so, therefore, a really essential help for our country right now. Thank you for, for sharing that. I actually, and teaching me, I didn't know anything about the, the monstrance, uh, the provenance of that sort of sun shape, uh, but it makes perfect sense to me. And you're right that, you know, the, the sort of downside of that deep enculturation is that in some cases it kind of can become invisible or mixed in with every other, you know, kind of cultural element. It's like food or music or the way we dress mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't stand out. But, but by and large, I agree with you. And I think the reason why or one of them is the very thing we talked about earlier, which is in the Latino mind, in the Latino community, this sense of interdependence and this mm -hmm. knowledge that we are, we're, we're part of something bigger and we are not God is very clear. It's very, yeah. very early established, right? Um, and I think that that, that, plays, uh, that plays a dividend, um, you know, as we, as we move forward. Um, but thank you very much for sharing that. Excellency, I want to talk about one more thing before we get to our last segment here, Wait What, mm -hmm. um, and that is about vocations. I know vocations are very near and dear to your heart, and I, I, I know there's a connection. I'll let you speak about that, obviously, between the voc vocations and the Eucharist. I mean, there's an obvious mm -hmm. one, and then there's maybe other ones that you have yourself come across and benefited from as a priest and as a bishop, but... 
what's your what's your take on vocations what do we need what else can we be focused on give us your give us your view yeah well today actually uh as soon as i finish this podcast i'm going to the cathedral tonight to celebrate my 25th anniversary of priesthood which is oh, a week awesome. from today the official anniversary um but the day i said my first mass which would have been june 1st uh, 1997 at the end of the homily i said now i'm going to go do what i was born to do which mm. is to offer to offer the the eucharist you know and uh that uh reality has been clear to me since in my own life since my earliest days when i first started serving mass and i experienced jesus's presence in the eucharist and i just i wanted to be close to him you know and uh ultimately that led me to want to be a priest and to want to answer the call but i do think that the question of vocation is it's the most important question that every person answers and it's it's i go back often to um Pope Francis says this in Christus Vivit, but I also find it in uh, John Paul II's writings where he said the church has to be involved in youth ministry because it's, young, it's when we're young, we make our vocational choice and we need to present Christ to young people. And when the church is healthy, the church will find ample young people who experience the call, which is a special call that not everyone experiences, but a, a special call to be able to give their life completely in following Christ. And it's part of the great mystery of life. Like, why does God call some people to this? And he, he doesn't mm. clearly call the smartest people or the most talented people, but he does call those whom he chooses to follow him in a more radical way. And that is by giving up what would be normal uh, in a life to marriage and family, to giving up my own career and to following him wherever he leads. Um, as it says in the book of the Revelation about the virgins, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Right? That's right. And so that beautiful uh, call, um, I, I just I find it so inspiring when young people are open to listening to that and to responding to it. And um, certainly in my own life, you know, as I mentioned, the Eucharist became a part of that in a very profound way. Mm. Yeah, and in a way, the beautiful thing about vocations in, in, in our kind of modern world is that, and maybe always, the, the, the priesthood specifically has been kind of countercultural, right? It's been, and, and young people mm-hmm. sometimes thrive to things that are kind of countercultural. And well, that vocation in particular, a priestly vocation or a vocation to the religious life, um, is decidedly that, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a way in that people look at and say, oh yeah, I want to do something different. Well, this is definitely different. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we would, uh, certainly from my perspective, I, I talk to my kids all the time about the priesthood being, you know, just in the consideration set, you know, for right. whatever, because oftentimes it isn't. Oftentimes it's like, well, I'm going to do all this. And then you hear about these stories and then, well, none of that happened. So then this thing happens that made me, makes me think about the priesthood. But I think as parents, we have to do a better job of introducing, uh, you know, the, the, the notion of the priesthood of that potential vocation being, you know, that calling from God at an early age as just within the, the realm of possibilities. Uh, I think just that alone might open up, um, you know, more potential among uh, young people in particular. Yeah. I was a particularly sick child uh, for various reasons. I had real severe allergies and asthma. And so I spent a lot of time in the hospital, almost died a couple of times. And mm. even before I was born, um, 
almost died. But um, my parents would often say to me, God spared your life because he has a plan for it. And your job is to figure out what that plan is. To find Now, that was clear to me because I was a sick kid, but it's true of everybody, right? Your job is to figure out what that plan is. And it's actually the key to your happiness. Um, and, uh, you know, when, um, people, when people come to understand the love of God, even if they're not called to consecrated life or to priesthood, they can understand why someone would be. Because yeah. they understand the love of God is powerful enough that it can actually command my whole heart if God wants it to. And it can mean that I'm, I'm not to give my heart to any other person because I'm to give my heart completely to him. And anyone who knows the love of God knows it's that real. Amen. Excellency, how can people follow um, the Eucharistic revival or, you know, get connected with what's happening potentially in their own neck of the woods? How can they stay involved with this as, as we launch and develop uh, this great work? Yeah, first off, go to eucharisticrevival.org and become a member. You can sign up. And there's going to be a weekly newsletter, which will begin after the launch. Uh, the first, June 19th is the launch. So that week, there'll be a weekly newsletter launched. And that'll contain every week inspiration, news, updates about what's going on in the, in the Eucharistic revival for the whole three-year period. So you're going to want to get signed up to get that weekly newsletter. You can also, most dioceses are having Eucharistic processions on June 19th. So you can certainly go to your own diocese website and look for the information on the Eucharistic revival. I think well over 60% of the diocese uh, will have Eucharistic processions on that way, that day. So certainly more than 100. And uh, uh, we're here in Crookston, we're doing it on Lake Bemidji. So this is northern Minnesota. So we have nice. a beautiful parish on the lake. And so we're going to do our uh, Eucharistic procession on, on the lake as we kick off this three-year revival. Well, and it'll be warm enough so you don't have to walk actually on the lake itself. You can walk around <laughs> Which it, Which right? we do in the winter. We walk on <laughs> <know>. the lake. <laughs> I'm sure, we walk on I'm water sure here. Do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, we'll include all that information in the show notes to this episode, Bishop, um, and hopefully everyone will avail themselves of that information and get involved and share and uh, really proclaim this great truth that we hold as uh, Catholic Christians to, to everybody, to, but certainly uh, based on the data, to, to Catholics themselves, I think, um, would be wonderful. So we'll do that in our prayers for the continued prosperity bishop of your of your ministries your priesthood thank you for your priesthood and for all the work um that you are doing up there in crookston and for the usccb so count on our prayers thank you so much deacon charlie all right are you ready to play excellency wait what yes all right let's go here we go first question excellency you have actually spoken publicly about some jail time that you served during your college years in civil disobedience over pro-life beliefs so no doubt you're the right guy for this question so <laughs> servant of god jacques fesch yes. died in 1957 the young age of 27 and he was a troubled guy. He was a wealthy French atheist. He actually fathered a daughter out of wedlock. Then he left his wife and child for another woman. He, of course, didn't find joy or peace in that life of dissipation. So, like, <laughs> maybe people who are not centered in the Eucharist decided to do, he said he eventually, he decided to rob a gold dealer. Now, the robbery didn't go as planned. He was pursued, and while shooting at the police, he actually injured an officer who died from his wounds. He was arrested, tried, convicted. He was uh, sentenced to the death penalty. But during his three years on death row, he had a profound conversion to Jesus Christ and to the Catholic Church. He wept over his sins 
reconciled with his family, became a very pious man, and many were moved and have been moved through his story to conversion. So all of which, decades later, Bishop prompted the Cardinal of Paris to open a diocesan inquiry into his life and led to a formal cause being open for his beatification. That happened in 1993. So, Excellency, in prison, Jacques Fesch kept a blank which cataloged a litany of mystical experiences and theological writings, which we still read today. He kept a what? Blank. A journal? A prison journal. That's right. Excellent. <laughs> I, I saw a play on Jock, on Jock Fesh. It was excellent. Oh, did you really? Okay. Yeah. yeah no, I, I'm, I'm just coming familiar with him. So, but, uh, but I, I plan on learning more. All right. Very good. We're off to a great start. Multiple choice question number two. Excellency, which of these is false about your hometown, the mile-high city of Denver, Colorado? Which is false about Denver? Is it A, the first building ever constructed in the city was a tool exchange where gold prospectors could shop and trade mining equipment? Is it B, Denver is ranked the best city in America for pets? Or is it C, Denver is the town with the longest street in the country, which of those is false? Which one is false? Um, B. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't so close. Idea. So C? close. It's, <laughs> no, it's actually A. So uh, oh, it, it is. It, it is true that Denver was ranked as the healthiest city in the country for pets by Purina wow. because it ranked it high in categories like veterinary to pet ratio and low number of fleas. So Purina is based in Denver, so we used to smell well, it as we drove by. The dog food factory was terrible. <laughs> I'm sure that there's some uh, self-servants in that data. but um, <laughs> And it is also true, Bishop, that Denver is the town with the longest street in the country. Colfax? Uh, Colfax Avenue is 26 uh, miles long. Yeah, it's the longest uh, street in I got my first traffic ticket on Colfax Avenue. Well, it seems like everybody <laughs> could get their first traffic ticket. It's the longest road. Um, no, the correct answer is A, the first permanent structure in Denver. It wasn't a church, a hospital, bank, or house, and it certainly wasn't in exchange for gold prospectors. It was a saloon, Bishop. Oh, that was course, the first structure. <laughs> Stands to reason. All right. Well, we're batting 500, but um, as listeners to this show know, there's always a time machine question. So here goes, and you're guaranteed to get this one right. You get a chance to travel back in time to Rome in the year 257. Making your way through the city, you accidentally bump into someone who's walking quickly through the street in the opposite direction with their head down. They stop and apologize for bumping into you before continuing. You notice the person is a young man, a boy, probably 11 or 12 years old. He walks away, still with his head down and holding something to his chest. You find it a bit odd, so you keep looking at him as he walks off. The boy passes an open field where other boys are playing a game. It seems to you that the other boys invite this boy to join one of the teams, but the boy declines. That's when they approach him and notice whatever it is he's clutching to his chest, and the boys start pulling at his hands, trying to get a look at what he's carrying. And that's when the scene comes to you, Bishop. Could the boy be the young St. Tarsisius. You step toward the group. They look at you strangely, and for a moment, they stop antagonizing the boy. What, if anything, Bishop, do you do next? <laughs> uh, I would genuflect before the Blessed Sacrament in Tarsisius's uh, arms. And as people who know me, hope that I would be martyred alongside of him. <laughs> Amen. Amen. He was martyred in that moment. And he was. Yep. That's right. I've always no, had very, a dream to be a martyr. 
<laughs> yeah, no, amen. It's such a great story. One of my uh, son's uh, patrons is uh, St. Tarsicius from a very, very young age. Beautiful story. Um, and we'll include show notes to uh, the, the Tarsicius Wikipedia so people can check out that story. Excellency, what a privilege to have you. Thank you so much for making yourself available for this show. Um, and uh, we'll be praying for you and all that you do. Thank you. And God bless you and all your listeners. Thank you. And oh, actually, Excellency, I can't forget this. Can you please give us a blessing? You bet. May the blessing of Almighty God, through the intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, descend upon you and remain with you forever, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And if you just received that blessing, that means it's time to subscribe to this show. Please share the show with a friend. Share this episode with somebody, maybe somebody who doesn't know the Eucharist or knows the Eucharist but doesn't believe the Eucharist. Share this show as maybe a step forward in that particular journey. And we will see you all again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening. <laughs>